Hello and welcome to the Plain Talking UK podcast. This is episode 463 and we're recording on a Thursday, which is a bit unusual and it's put everybody out of whack. Absolutely. Uh, because we just think it's going to be Saturday tomorrow. So uh, we must remember to go to work tomorrow. That's a, that's a good point. Yes, so. very excited by that. Yeah. Yes. Well, on, on this week's show, we've got flying colanders, uh, I mean cars. <laughs> Uh, one airline decided to get into the fashion industry and we celebrate the birthday of one cabin crew member who is soon to be a great grandmother in the military this week massive upgrades for the RAF typhoons and a first flight for the T7A joining me today is good old Matt Smith over in the PTUK Master Suite Studio. Hope How, you remembered it's Thursday. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's today is fine. It's tomorrow that's going to spin me out because I'm going to get up yeah. tomorrow morning and do a radio show and then realise that I didn't need to get up at five o'clock in the morning in order to do it. So that that's going to spin me out a bit. But uh, Nev, you've had a bit of a bit of a journey, shall oh, we say, a bit of a battle, shall we say, to get here on time. <laughs> well, because of the train strike business that's going on at the moment, I thought I'll take the car into London, which was superb this morning. But uh, right, very good. Coming out tonight was. Uh, very challenging and very slow so uh, i made it with a few minutes to spare I you did say. so absolutely which is why i'm still in the company branded <laughs> uniform rather than in the slightly more comfortable clothing Look, looks very smart nev i have to say yeah, although it might say. be a bit smelly though i think that's, <laughs> that's all right we we don't have smell of vision yet it's fine. no just, <laughs> just as well uh, also joining us tonight carlos is not with us tonight due to uh, operational circumstances shall we say <laughs> and we'll find out what those are next week perhaps uh, but uh, as always our good chum Nick Codling who does such a fantastic job behind the scenes helping us with the production he's on the show tonight so uh, hi Nick how are you? No, I'm good thanks Nev it's uh, good to be back again and uh this is becoming quite a regular thing now that this sub bench is starting to get a bit creaky. I think we might have to, might have to give it a bit of yeah, a bit of an oiling. I think that's it. Break yeah. out the WD forty, or as I saw somewhere, apparently they've made a WD fifty, which has melted my brain. Goodness. Well, that's inflation for you, isn't it? But yeah. True, true. <laughs> so, I thought that, yes, fair. Uh, but uh, I, I'm just intrigued to know what the difference is. I, I feel like I need to invest in it just to sort of find out. It's an internet question, isn't it, I think? Well, yes, OK, I'll, I'll Google it. Uh, I'm, I'm not doing anything now. I'll, I'll have a look. Uh, one moment, Colin. Oh, let's do that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so great to have everybody on the chat room. Thank you very much, Anita, for joining us in the chat room as well. And uh, it's always a pleasure to see folks in there. And uh, if only I could get my uh, window to work properly. I don't know if you can see uh, the chat room where you are, Matt, because I... I can, yes. I will I have a look and see if I, can, see if I can get uh, find the uh, participants. Here we go. I'll whiz through the list very quickly. Obviously, a, a small crowd this evening because we are uh, we are sort of uh, pr on out on a day that we wouldn't normally, but I'm pleased to say that the legend that is Dirk S, the gorgeous Masha, Richard Adams, uh, Tanya, and of course, Tonya in the chat room there, keeping us company today, along with the lovely Katie from Park Radio as well. So there we go. Uh, it's a small team, but uh, as I say, uh, we've got the experts in, so I have no doubt that we'll still be having our usual amazing conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, uh, it's thanks to the chat room that we can uh, put the show on at all. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, your, your very kind donations uh, at the start of the month, we always read out those folks who mm -hmm. have contributed. So many thanks once again to uh, Bill Aronek, Sam Dawson, Alex Robinson, Dirk S, Sasha Beer, Stephen Ivey, Nicholas Codling, that's him, uh, Louis Cachares, Alan White, Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Nicholas Hewitt, Masha Geertz, Ruben Wells, Neil Lamborn, Graham Haley, 
Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Jenny Parkinson, Stuart Backer, Ray Williams and Stephanie Plummer. And for those who have contributed by PayPal, that's Craig Urisoko and Masus Kareem. Thank you very much, one and all, your contributions. Uh, help us keep the show on the road. Very much so. Greatly appreciated, especially in these, um, shall we say, uh, challenging times, especially if you're here in the UK. The cost of living crisis is not a joke, is it? Let's be honest. Uh, so, yeah, really appreciate everybody who uh, very kindly puts their hand in their pocket uh, to support the show. It yeah. is Got a couple of good, uh, great pieces of video to play out later on as well in the show. Uh, one of them is our good friend uh, Rory has very kindly uh, said that we can use his new video. Uh, if you're not familiar with Rory, if you look up on YouTube uh, or in Google for Rory on air, you'll see that Rory is a fully qualified co-pilot. Uh, on the Sikorsky over uh, up in uh, Aberdeen uh, as you're doing the uh, oil rig work. That's a fascinating video, so we're going to play that out later on. Mm. And then uh, after that, we're going to play out the second part of the interview that we did with John Brown over at the uh, Museum of Flight at East Fortune. And I'm talking to John about aircraft preservation and how difficult that is. He's got some fascinating opinions about that mm. and uh, really worth uh, staying around to, to listen to that, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, going yeah. to be worth it. As I say, so, uh, uh, yeah, it's a packed old show. I suppose we better get stuck in, haven't we? Yes, let's do it. Turn on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. Top story on the commercial news tonight from the on the standard UK British Airways passenger stabbed with bottle by another passenger on a flight from Gatwick to St Lucia. Uh, this sounds pretty horrific, doesn't it? A BA passenger uh, was reportedly uh, reportedly stabbed another man with a broken bottle in a violence attack on board a flight from London Gatwick to St Lucia. Uh, the fight broke out between two men during the eight-and-a-half-hour flight to Huonora International Airport on Monday, leading cabin crews to reportedly restrain the attacker. Uh, eyewitnesses told how the fight began as a verbal row before turning physical. Perhaps uh, someone had occupied my seat. Uh, my <laughs> mate, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, one man reportedly seized a glass bottle, which he then smashed before using it to stab the other man. BA crew and two customers are said to have intervened. Uh, one passenger, said to be a St Lucian national who tried to act as peacemaker, reportedly, reportedly sustained a cut that needed 12 stitches, according to St Lucia Times. Images and footage of the incident appear to show a wounded man with blood staining his white vest and blood spattered, splattered on the inside of the aircraft. A British Airways spokesman said, we are shocked that anyone would act in this way and are grateful to our highly trained cabin crew and the customers who supported them in handling this difficult incident. I want to assure customers that this behaviour will never be tolerated and we will always take the appropriate action. Uh, the incident is being investigated by police in St Lucia. I mean, it's, it's, there's no stopping it, is there? I mean, can't, can't people just behave themselves for a few hours on a flight? 
Also, I also, I mean, this is this is not something you expect to take place on BA, is it? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there's fights well, breaking quite, out on. I mean, yeah, that all should sound, you know, too snobby about the whole thing. No, indeed. Uh, you know, I but, mean, poor, I mean, poor yeah. Jet Two, which are, I should stress are an absolutely beautiful airline. They really mm. look after their passengers and all that kind of thing. But they do seem to have the the worst luck when it comes to um, uh, sort of fights and stuff on board. But I mean, I this I feel like this is a very very unusual incident. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, Dirk S is, <laughs> says quite right. They can't even behave for ten minutes on the ground. No, true. no, indeed. I mean, I don't know. Where, I don't. I, I really don't know where to begin with this one. It just makes me feel um, sort of. I, 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 my big, my biggest thing, obviously, you know, we, we've got, we've all got friends who are cabin crew or, or are pilots on this kind of thing. I think my most distressing feeling, if you like, about all of this is the fact that the crew have to deal with this. Hmm. Yeah. That's the thing that, that is quite stressful. I mean, uh, it sounds like nobody, uh, you know, it sounds like they got it under control and that uh, the, the, the injuries that they sustained weren't fatal. Um, but, I mean, it's, I know, it almost doesn't bear thinking about, like... Also, I mean, the, the, you know, the possibility of it, um, well, be becoming a fatality mm. was quite real, I would imagine, and also very difficult to uh, administer, you know, proper medical treatment yeah. uh, on such a, a a long flight as well i don't know when it when it happened mm. uh, during the flight but uh, just horrific um but Indeed. um yeah uh, i'm well delighted that the cabin crew were able to intervene yeah. and, and the, the the fellow was restrained but um they shouldn't have to be so brave though should they i'm sorry that's it's... not what you sign up for when no, you uh, go for your interview is, is it really? no absolutely yeah. not any thoughts on this nick well i mean you know you Obviously, incidents like this occur in situations where alcohol is involved, mm -hmm. and you know, you go you go into a, a, a city centre on a Friday night, and you, you know, you kind of expect stuff like this to happen to some degree. Mm -hmm. So, I guess the fact that alcohol, you know, is a probably a contributing factor um, statistically, I, I suppose it, it's possible for an event like this to occur every now and then but um I, yeah. I guess the difference between being in a pub on a friday night and being in the inside of an aircraft is the fact that there could be um okay, could all be sorts children, of you know families around and yeah. people people that um you know you wouldn't want to be exposing them to this this type of activity or behavior yeah. and uh, yeah um Not and obviously it's uh, it's very uh very distressing to see people behave like this indeed i mean not to mention of course i mean uh, okay i mean you don't know what what the weapon you know the weapon shall we say i mean if the blade was big enough it could have gone through you know panels and or windows or all sorts of things couldn't it i mean it, there's all sorts of things that could have been done if people were lashing out but so i guess the further consequences uh don't bear I, thinking I, I about i think i i hope that whoever was involved is made um mm. Well, made an example of, shall we say? Uh, oh, Richard Adams! You see, this is—we can always rely on Richard Adams for a, a useful comment, can't we? <laughs> yes, Richard says. Have we mentioned cattle prods before? Brilliant idea. Yes. I think uh, I think it, they should be standard issue say, for all. I was going to say, rather than having um, zip ties, you know, uh, that they should uh, yeah. maybe have something a bit more substantial. Sit down or electrocute you, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, why not? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
you know, just an awful incident. That's that's uh, yeah, all we can say about absolutely. that. Mm. Uh, next story is with you, uh, Matt, and this yep. is uh, about electronic devices. Oh, no. again. Here we go then. Uh, so it's uh, punching.com and also simpleflying.com are the sources on this. Delta South and Southwest ban TikTok on employee devices. Um, Delta Airlines and Southwest Airlines have both implemented bans on the video sharing app TikTok for their employees. Delta Airlines recently announced that it was prohibiting the use of TikTok on phones connected to its work network. This decision aligns with a recent US government ban that restricts the presence and use of TikTok on information technology networks, including equipment used by federal contractors. Delta Airlines is extending the ban to include any personal device used to access its internal network systems. This means that using TikTok on employees' personal devices for work-related purposes, such as accessing apps, email, the intranet, or flight booking systems, will no longer be allowed. Uh, Delta Airlines itself has has an official TikTok account with a significant number of followers, but the ban applies specifically to employee devices. Southwest Airlines had previously implemented a similar ban on TikTok for the same reason as uh, a federal contractor that works for various government agencies and carries federal employees on official travel. Southwest Airlines is required to adhere to the government guidance. The, the TikTok has been inaccessible on the Southwest, Southwest network since 20, 28th of June 2023. However, the Southwest Social Business and Insights team will continue to use TikTok outside the airlines network to communicate with customers um yeah i don't i i i don't know how i feel about this one the thing is that I think the problem is is that we've now got i mean w before social media there was very very clear well, actually perhaps even before mobile phones to a certain extent there's quite clear delineation between uh, work slash business and private and social mm. wasn't there when you now you've got obviously different platforms yep. of social media that becomes very blurred mm. and i and i think that um uh people haven't really thought all of that through about what some of the consequences might be mm. what do you think Matt? i mean my I guess my my thinking on this one is it's just I, I think the issue for me is this one and I, I'm trying to sort of be a bit careful about obviously because I mean there are some political reasons behind this and obviously I don't want to to stem sort of into that territory there but I do feel that if you're going to do this with one particular because it's a social media app isn't it at the end of the day mm. let's let's be honest a social media app so if you're going to ban TikTok then you need to ban Instagram Facebook um and uh twitter and yes. whatever the new one is that meta is because let's be honest the the data Thread. policy with uh meta is probably as questionable as any of the other social media networks including uh, tiktok and all that kind of thing so uh, I, my my concern is that tiktok has been um sort of 
like singled out if you like um, uh, and no real explanation or reason has been given um, so you know if you want to make that a blanket policy that on all work devices and I think that's a very good idea because unless you unless you work for the airline doing social media then really you don't have any need for social media platforms on your work device as you were saying Nev I mean this is this is the thing um, and if you are for example um, say you've got your personal phone if you like connected to a network let's use southwest because obviously th this story mentions that specifically uh, if you do want to access social media then just turn off your connection to the the the, the work wi-fi i mean you know mm. the businesses have the right to allow access you know to certain things and deny you access to certain things but that doesn't stop you from switching the wi-fi off and using your data for example so for me it would be um it fine i don't have a problem with banning banning that but banning tiktok on its own makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because i feel most of the social networks are as bad as each other in terms of gathering data and manipulating it for their own uses so uh, if you're going to do it do it across the board and don't just single out one app no that's a good point and i think uh, i mean british airways had a bit of a problem with this a while ago where they decided that they were going to have a what called quite a, an exclusive group of BA employees some of them uh, captains and co-pilots that were allowed to use yep. uh, Twitter on, on behalf of the company and report on on certain things as, as long as they weren't in flight when they were doing it and, and various other rules and regs uh, but even that got pulled as well so mm -hmm. I, I think that there's um, there's some work to be done on this social media yeah. business Mm. And and it definitely has its place. I, I, you know, I mean, I love. Stuff. I mean, some of the, my favourite aviation-related content has come from uh, various pilots, not just BA pilots, you know, but sort of pilots sharing their amazing journeys and and like mm. some people, you know, because I mean, the crew life isn't glamorous. We know that, but it is pretty cool. Um, you know, do you know what I mean? It is, is it is a pretty cool thing that they do, and I know they're all absolutely exhausted and mm. uh, jet jet lag. I can't even begin to imagine, especially if you go like if you go from Dubai to uh, let's say um, Melbourne and then Melbourne to uh, New Zealand, uh, you know, and back again and all that kind of thing. I mean, what that must do to your body clock in terms of jet lag, it, it just melts my mind. Um, you know, but I do think it, you know social media can be used as a way of you know keeping the profile of an airline really mm. really high so if it's handled correctly like you were yeah. saying the example there with the BA pilots I mean I loved their content it was fascinating yeah. it really was um, but uh, Mark's uh, very kindly saying Matt you hit the nail on the head there they, they're all doing it they're all as bad as each other this is the thing mm. because they're all yeah. trying to you know so so that's my that's that's my temper Has anyone anyone else got something well, yeah. <laughs> Nick what do you what do you think yeah, I think uh, companies are very understandably very protective of their their uh, their image and the way that their 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 brand is perceived in the wider world aren't they so i think it's yeah it, it's something that that's very mm. sensitive for, for large corporate organizations yeah. regardless of who they are um, you know and i think um you know we we all as as employees when we when we sign up to do a job we have to sign up to comply with a an it policy mm -hmm. and Yep. You know, and that, that will include, um, you know, not portraying your employer in a bad light. So I yep. guess it, it sort of stems ultimately from that. Mm. I don't know whether there's a more a, a sort of broader thing where it might come down to 
employee productivity perhaps with uh, sort of misuse of um Mm. But again, that, I mean, that's being sort of step- on the internet when they shouldn't be. Should yeah, we say. <laughs> but then that stems into into the same argument, isn't it? Don't just don't just single out TikTok as as the only social yeah. media platform that you ban. If you're going to do it, and those are the reasons why you're doing it, then ban them across the board. You know, or you know that you know the person if they do need to do it for whatever reason, turn off the, turn off their network and and use their their data connection instead. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, uh, Nick's going to read the next story for us, uh, and the chat room are going to have a field day with this one. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure. So, uh, over to you, Nick. Yeah, so I came across this one on flyingmag.com. So, um, hopefully, Matt's going to put up some pictures because I, I, I want everybody to have a little look at this one because we've got so it's a very interesting vehicle that we're going to talk about. Mm. So, Aleph Aeronautics electric flying car design, the Model A, has been granted experimental category special airworthiness certificate by the FAA. This paves the way towards type certification and potentially revolutionizes road and air travel. Okay, we'll see about that. (laughs) Unlike similar models in similar certification processes like Terrafuge's Transition and Samson Sky's Switchblade, the Model A is a fully electric vehicle and works as a VTOL aircraft enabling possible urban takeoffs. It can drive on roads and hop over obstacles like poor road conditions and bad weather. So, like Kit, Knight Rider? (laughs) Uh, This approval allows Aleph to conduct public flight demonstrations previously heavily limited. Aleph has flown full-scale Model A prototypes since 2019 after four years of R&D, showcasing driving, vertical takeoff and brief forward flight to investors. The Model A can drive 200 statutory miles and fly 110 miles, carrying one passenger. One passenger. Its design includes four small wheel engines and a central driver's seat, but the bulk of the design infrastructure is simply air. The meshing provides breathing room for the vehicle's eight propellers, allowing it to lift off vertically. During the flight transition, the vehicle rotates its sides to form wings. The driver's seat adjusts, making the driver a pilot facing the vehicle's previous roof. Once aligned, forward flight starts. This all sounds very complicated. It does. Model A priced at $300,000 and is set for a 2025 launch and has attracted over 440 pre-orders within months of opening pre-sale to the public. Prospective users can pay $150 to enter the pre-order general queue or $1,500 to join a priority queue. So these orders, including one from a large Hong Kong-based aviation company, could potentially generate more than $132 million in revenue for Aleph. In addition, the Model A is also developing a four-seat variant, the Model Z. They've obviously gone with the tesla school of car naming (laughs) that will supposedly have a range of 400 miles on the ground and 200 miles in the air expected to be introduced by 2035 now interestingly enough dirk s has said on uh in the chat room there uh, somewhere between the fifth element and demolition man and i know what he means because i remember (laughs) i remember i remember sort of seeing something similar to to this particular vehicle uh sort of like in these films uh one thing i would like to stress though uh and john has very kindly put these in the in the notes here or was this you nick i can't remember but uh uh 
I think it's I think it's worth trying to gather a little perspective here. So this is the design of where they're hoping that this is going to go. Are you ready for this, ne Nev? Um, I love all the computer-generated artwork and all that kind of thing. But so this this, this is the computer-generated artwork, and it's doing amazing things by flying on its side in beautiful hilly things and oh. all this kind of thing. Brace yourself, Nev. Here you go. Uh, we do have a prototype. Bearing in mind that this is only going to be launched, you know, this is supposed to be launched in like three or four years time essentially so not far away okay so this is the prototype uh, so this is this is like you know the 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 dream uh, and that. this is the current prototype uh that's the heathrow pod <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> absolutely um yeah now oh. i appreciate for those listening on the audio version of the show difficult to do this please just take even if you just take yourself to the the, the show notes just to have a look at this uh i mean the um the uh, the pie in the sky idea about what they're going to look like versus the current reality is quite stark. I think that's yeah. a good point. I, I, I do find it extraordinary that poor old Neil uh, Cloughley at yeah. Faraday has gone through you know hell and back over over the last yeah. eight or nine years uh, trying to get his uh, product uh, and service mm. in, in to the air and into production um, with quite a sensible approach Very I would much say so. to, to uh, regional aviation and then we've seen this, this. Uh, that you've just shown us <laughs> I, I, well even the even the kind of uh, the, the 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 dream as you called it there Matt of the the computer generated image of what, yeah. of what they'd like it to look like yeah it kind of looks like it, well the fir my first thoughts were they basically strapped a, a, a circular pod for the the human to sit in and strapped it to a colander. It does look a bit like that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, Mark Priestley is asking, by the way, uh, question, is it pothole resistant? I mean, if it's flying over them, potentially, yes, I guess. But uh, I mean, it has <laughs> the uh, aerodynamics of a Volvo 240, doesn't it? Does. it? You, you have to be a certain age to know what Indeed. Or, or, or the, uh, the, uh, the aerodynamics, di aerodynamics of a house brick, Nev, to be fair, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's yeah. Uh, yeah I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I lovely idea, but I think I think uh, I think the you know the the dream versus the reality is a very very long way away. <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, right. Well, uh, well, the the next one uh, is for you, Matt. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, so, some more normal aviation. I'm I'm pleased. Oh, to good. See. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes, uh, the headline on this one, sorry, it's airport-technology.com is the source on this one. And the headline is Air Intuit renews fleet with Boeing 737-800s, marking 45 years in operation. Uh, so a Canadian airline, Air Intuit, which uh, provides passenger and freight services to remote uh, Nunavik communities, uh, confirmed its acquisition of three next-generation Boeing 737 737-800 aircraft. The flyer said that the planes would be customised specifically for Air Intuit to provide seats for passengers as well as safe and secure freight delivery on each flight. The upgraded fleet will be introduced to service gradually over the next two years, but further public investment is needed to complete the modernisation plan. Crucially, rural airstrips will need to be upgraded. Uh, I'm just going to 
find the pictures actually for there because this one is a stunning photograph. Uh, nonetheless, the purchase of three new aircraft in 2023 is said to mark an important milestone for Air Intuit, which is celebrating 45 years of operation in 2023. Along with increasing the airline's ability to complete its core mission, the ser to serve rural northern Quebec Intuit communities, it will also boost its environmental credentials. Air Intuit said that the new craft would cut emissions by 40% in comparison with its current fleet of 737-200 planes. Uh, Nunavik is in the northern half of Quebec, the largely French-speaking Canadian province and home to many Intuit, sometimes referred to as First Nation communities. Air Intuit, sorry, Air Inuit, I've been saying, I just realised I've been saying it wrong, uh, is headquartered in Montreal and operates a northern base at, uh, is it Cook? Kujavik Airport? Kujak? Go with that. Yeah, Kujak <laughs> Airport. Sorry yeah. about that. Yes, apologies if I've just ruined uh, that. I was doing so well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful livery, as you say. And I think one of the nice things about this um, is, uh, as you say, sort of uh, the 40% reduction. It's, I know it's only a small fleet, but the, in, a, in an area such as that, um, you know, that 40% is going to be a, a good number, isn't it, in terms of... Um, you know, lowering the um, the numbers. I think, mm. anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Mm. Super well, impressive. A... They've been running those old two hundreds for so long. Oh yeah. With the little skinny cigar engines, it's. Uh, I think it was um, Carlos that found this one. Actually, he mm. sent it to me last night, and um, yeah, I think he was a bit uh, taken with the idea of those old seven three seven two hundreds for so <laughs> long. Smoky Joe's. Yes. Yeah, he wants one of those in his garden. I think that's what he, he wants. Oh, another. Up. Yes, yeah. I can just see that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, well, this is an interesting uh, take on the theme from <laughs> one mile at a time dot com, uh, where it says that uh, Japan Airlines will rent you clothes. Becky Parsons. Well, I know. It's <laughs> abnormal, isn't it? But it yeah. says that sustainability is an increasingly important topic for airlines, and we've just seen airlines undertake all kinds of initiatives to become greener. Japan Airlines has just announced a new initiative which has to be one of the strangest that we've seen. Uh, JAL has teamed up with Sumitomo Corporation to launch a trial of a clothing sharing device which is called Anywhere, Anywhere. See what they did there? Uh, the idea is that foreign tourists and business travellers landing in Japan on JAL will be able to rent clothes for their trip, meaning they just have to bring their underwear and socks. Oh, my. Bear, bear with me. Bear with me. <laughs> this trial is scheduled to run from the 5th of July this year to August the 31st next year. And this is how it's going to work. You can reserve your clothes online prior to your trip, selecting the clothing set that best suits the season and purpose of your visit. Um, you've got to enter your Japan Airlines booking reference, the date of pickup and return, and information about your destination uh, where you intend to pick up and drop off your clothing set. You've got to make payment in advance and reserve your clothes at least one month prior to your trip. You can then fly Japan Airlines to Japan with uh, less baggage and then pick up and return your clothing set at the hotel. Now, the return date for clothing must be within two weeks. Uh, well, looking at the selection, there's a variety of categories, uh, including choosing casual or smart casual, selecting summer, winter or spring or autumn, and picking out how many tops and bottoms you want. 
pricing per collection is between 5,000 and 7,000 yen, which is between 35 and 50 dollars, and that includes the cost of shipping. Uh, the trial will initially be limited to visitors arriving in the country on Japan Airlines flights until uh, August 2024, as I mentioned. But if the service proves to be a success, Sumitomo may look at rolling out to other One World carriers also. Uh, that could be BA, couldn't it? Uh, it could. While removing a few items of clothing from an aircraft may not sound like much, even small amounts of weight can make a difference over long distances. Uh, according to Japan Airlines, every kilogram of weight taken out of a flight between uh, Tokyo, Haneda and New York JFK reduces the aircraft's carbon emissions by 0.75 of a kilogram. Also, when carried out at scale, the initiative could prove very effective. In addition to reducing aircraft carbon emissions, Sumitomo hopes that the scheme will help to cut down on clothing waste too, tackling the problem, problem of so-called fast fashion. Hmm. Oh, I've got a lot of questions here. <laughs> Indeed, you're too tired for this really, aren't you, Nev? Let's be well, especially for... How can I put this? Us, us larger yes, fellows. That was, that was going to be my question, Nev. I'm not going to lie. It's like the chances oh. of them having a, an outfit that would fit me short of essentially um, essentially like renting me a tent. I don't really see uh, that they're going to have, um, you know, I mean, I, I could be terribly wrong. Uh, well, I don't know that any three of us are, are what you might <laughs> consider to be a typical Japanese size. No, that that is true. Um, it's, uh, yeah, Richard Adams is saying, considering some of the odd things that they have for sale in vending machines in Japan, nothing is that surprising. I suppose there is that, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I like the idea of this. I mean, you think, I, I mean, I'm, I hate packing and I'm thinking the one thing I won't have to worry about essentially is packing. You know, I mean, you know, because let's be honest. So if you're going there for like, you know, so, OK, you can only go there for two weeks. Essentially, your clothes are being provided. The hotel usually has your your shower gel and all that kind of thing. So essentially, you can go on holiday with your toothbrush. <laughs> I, I think really they like take the a leave of, of their senses, to be honest with you. OK, I, yeah. Not for you, Nev. No, it is not for me, and it would not be for most people. But yeah. that's a very pejorative uh, yeah. opinion, I realise. But honestly, I, I just find it um, difficult to see. I mean, because the whole thing about your clothes that you've bought for you yes. is that it's a it's a comfortable place to be, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. for there's familiarisation. Whereas yeah. if you're um, relying on other clothing, which you may have been able to see online and, and choosing what you want. Yeah. It's not the same, is it? What, what if what if you get there and the clothes don't fit, Nev? That's oh. the other thing. So you've got no other clothes with you. You've only got the clothes that you literally travelled in, and somehow you've got to keep them clean for two weeks. Essentially, it's going to be a lot of expensive yes. bills down to laundry every night. I think that's that. That's what's no, going to happen. A bill there. makes a good yeah. point here. He says, uh, "What happens when you get there and they don't have your order?" True. True. Well, this so is you're it. just yeah. in your and your bra and pants. Oh dear! And that's just the blokes. And that's like I said, that's, that's just me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, sounds insane. Oh, oh dear! I I I want to be. Um, I, I don't know. A part of me thinks, oh, I caught you know, you know, good on them for a bit of an innovation. And the other half is me thinking, I don't know, have they have they lost the plot is here? It, is it I because know. we're doing the show on a Thursday? We're coming yep. out with ridiculous stories. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what it is. Car. Yep. Yep. Now we're doing. Let's not bother taking your clothes to the airport. <laughs> <all on holiday. laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. 
Yeah, yeah indeed. Right. Let's see if Nick can uh, rescue the situation then, shall well, we? Should we, yeah. should we get back and talk about an actual aeroplane? Oh, all right then. How about that? Yeah, go on then. So that's, yeah, this is a nice one. So this one comes from aerotime.aero. Airbus unveils sixth and final Beluga XL as it emerges mm. from the paint shop. Airbus has unveiled the latest addition to its fleet of oversized airlifters as the sixth Beluga XL emerged from the paint shop. This aircraft marks the final instalment in the manufacturer's renewed lineup of these specialised carriers. With a length of 63.1 metres and a height of 18.9 metres, it boasts a wingspan of 60.3 metres and a capacious cargo hold measuring 2,209 cubic metres the largest among all civil or military aircraft currently in service. Based on an A330-200 freighter, the Rolls-Royce Trent 700-powered Beluga XL is a successor to the previous version of the Airbus airlifter, the Beluga ST. That's like a Focus ST, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Very similar. <laughs> Just the like first it. Beluga XL entered service in January 2020. The Beluga is utilised for transporting chemical tanks, space rocket components and large aircraft parts between Airbus's manufacturing sites, as well as cargo for various companies in different sectors. The Beluga XL boasts a 30% larger cargo capacity compared to its predecessor. That is impressive, the A300-600ST Beluga. The new transporter features an elongated fuselage bubble section that is six metres longer and one metre wider, enabling it to transport larger aircraft sections, such as a complete wing set for an A350XWB between production sites and final assembly lines. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool-looking aircraft. It's, it's impressive uh, to see it uh, in the flesh. Uh, I've seen them a, a few times at uh, Harden uh, Airport, where the Airbus factory is in Flintshire. Um, and uh, they've actually got, a, on the um, on the site of the airport there, uh, they've got a very good um, place to eat called Chocks Away Diner. <laughs> uh, I've taken a, my, one of my customers there a couple of times. Uh, and uh, they actually uh, tell you where, when the, the times of the aircraft are, are booked as well to, to land and take off. But honestly, the breakfast that they do at this place is just incredible. Uh, so you can have that as well as uh, looking out the window and some very good views of the runway. Uh, look at the uh, the new Beluga as well. So, so this, uh, this picture yeah. here, by the way, this, this picture here by the way, so this, this is a momentous picture. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just saying this, uh, Nev, because Mr. Warner is in the chat room and Mr. Warner has just sent me this photograph, which means that he does have some non-military pho photographs Goodness. in his collection. This is, this is a momentous moment. I mean, I've not seen this one, obviously, because it's just come out of the paint shop mm. and all that kind of thing. But um, loyal uh, viewers and listeners to the show will remember that a very, very long time ago, uh, I went with Owen to Toulouse. And actually, when we were in the, air in the airport waiting to come back, because we did like a 24-hour, we sort of, you know, went on the Friday, came back on the Saturday or whichever way around it was. Um, and uh, there was one 
of these uh, the, the 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 previous uh, beluga was actually at uh, Toulouse Airport because of course the 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 airport's the other side, isn't it? So you, of the Airbus factory in mm. Toulouse, so it was fascinating. So they are stunning. I, mean, I just love the sort of like the whale element to it. You know the way that they've sort of yeah. dressed it up and put an eye on it. I just think it's a lovely little little touch. I think. No, excellent. That's really mm. good. And also, I seem to recall. I mean, I haven't obviously seen this one because it's uh, um, it's just come out. But the the XL, um, mm. it's not very noisy at all. It's really, really surprising. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the landing and takeoff speeds aren't, aren't very high either. So. No, indeed. Uh, Jonathan saying that was at Riyadh last year that he that he grabbed that picture. So great picture mm. talking of large aircraft uh, on the birmingham world uh, dot, uh, uk uh, this is all about the world's largest airline which has returned to birmingham airport and the a380 landed at birmingham on saturday the first of july returning to the region for the first time since uh, march 2020 uh, uh, emirates flights at ek 039 touchdown in birmingham uh, at 20 uh, 12 25 local time with the iconic double-decker receiving a warm welcome from locals as it taxied to the stand. It also featured uh, Emirates' brand-new distinctive livery with modern updates to the tail fin and wingtips. Uh, Emirates has now resumed using its 615-seater Airbus A380s for the first time since the pandemic. Uh, the A380 service is daily and adds to the existing 777-300ER service to serve Birmingham with a combined 1,042 seats over the two flights per day. Uh, both the Emirates check-in counter and gate at Birmingham Airport were also decked out with celebratory uh, decorations, including welcome back signs. Uh, the return flight, EK040, departed for Dubai at 2.20pm. Emirates originally started the Dubai to Birmingham route in December 2000 with its A380s being used from 2016 and in 2017 the airline flew thrice daily to Birmingham using the A380 although that was eventually reduced to uh, twice daily uh, until the pandemic hit. Uh, Nick Barton, who's CEO of Birmingham Airport, said Emirates' magnificent A380 aircraft on the BHS BHX tarmac is a sight for sore eyes. We are all thrilled to see it back. Whether travelling for business, leisure or family, our twice-day Dubai services are very popular, with nine out of the ten seats sold on average. They've had more than 10 seats on an aircraft, but I think I know what I mean. <laughs> um, uh, the extra capacity offered by the A380 will be welcomed by Emirates customers. Now, I mean, so we, we've chosen, uh, I think it's safe to say that we've chosen to sort of go with the facts that are associated with this story. Now, uh, Nick, you found a slightly different take on this on a different, uh, different media outlet, shall we say. Yes, well, I think, you know, here at PTUK, um, and I, you know, and I think this is possibly one of Nev's more more specialist areas <laughs> is, is uh, doing a particularly good line in being outraged at the uh, the general media and the way that they cover aviation. Uh, and I know it's a sort of a bit of a pet peeve of ours. Um, so it turns out that um, they that they relaunched the service on the first of July, and unfortunately on the fourth of July they had uh, an incident with a bit of a heavy landing. Um, which caused a, a, a tire to pop and consequently, as, as you might expect, uh, that put a bit of an extra strain on the, on the brakes and caused a bit of smoke to occur. And, um, you know, no, I, I, not us, well, not us. Wow. There was, you know, some, uh, out of, um, 
you know taking taking precaution for safety uh the uh the, the fire services at, at the airport obviously uh responded just to make sure that everything was was safe uh but obviously as our uh media liked to it, it was completely sensationalized uh to the point where it was you know over dramatized uh and making a real big fuss about it and one of them in particular showed the 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 picture that Matt's putting up now, which uh, you know, this this is this is what one of the media outlets deemed to be an appropriate way to cover what is essentially a bit of a non-incident <laughs> by showing a passenger's blurred photograph of something. So, is, so essentially, what you're saying from that is that something happened, not very serious, and it was handled exactly as it should be. Yeah, that's about the depth of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any thoughts, Nev? <laughs> well, no, it's just par for the course, though, isn't it? Really, yeah. that's the problem. Uh, it's just not. None of this is surprising anymore, is it? Really. Mm. Um, but back in the day, I mean, I can't remember when it was, but you know, we used to have quite good uh, aircraft reporting, didn't we? When we had mm. proper transport correspondents, like. Richard Westcott, for example, yeah, 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 and those sort of people. But honestly, but some of the stuff that we see these days and hear about uh, is pretty ridiculous. Whether mm. it's a, a go around or something, you know, very minor. Um, I think uh, Richard Adams uh, hits it on the head quite nicely here. What he says, uh, I expect they called it a seven four seven anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, I'm just going to uh, interrupt um, the uh, proceedings uh, just for a moment, if I may. Carlos uh, has just sent actually a, a message into uh, our group chat here. It's hot, it's a story hot off the presses of uh, from the Suffolk.police.uk website, and it's uh, a story in Halesworth, which is not far away from where uh, the studios here, me and Carlos, are. It says, Halesworth, light aircraft crash. Emergency services are currently at the scene of an incident in Halesworth. This story was published uh, literally a couple of minutes before we went on air. Police were called at approximately 5.15pm today Thursday the 6th of July following reports of a light aircraft crash in the grounds of Heveningham Hall. Police ambulance crew and Suffolk Fire and Rescue are all in attendance to the incident. The pilot, a man is being airlifted to hospital having sustained serious injuries no one else was on board the plane at this stage it is believed the pilot was attempting to land the plane at the time of the incident an area of Heveningham Hall has been cordoned off while officers deal with the incident and the air accident investigation branch has been informed there we go so that's Halesworth quite near you then um, yeah so Halesworth is probably about six and a half miles away from us up the literally the Halesworth Strait uh, yeah. just up the road from us um, and uh, Heveningham Hall is I'd say just the other side of uh, of Halesworth so uh, mm. So, yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, there's a big event uh, going on at Heveningham Hall this weekend as well, so it may have been uh, related to that um, yeah. as to why aircraft and stuff were going in there. That's all we know at this stage. Uh, we may have an update perhaps to share with you on next yeah. week's show, but Hope that's hot. Okay. Indeed, yeah. It's, well, as I say, it sounds like only one person involved at the moment, um, and uh, they have been uh, airlifted to hospital, mm. so fingers crossed um, that, you know, all is well, yeah. as you say. Uh, but that's all we have for the moment literally hot off the presses yeah well unfortunately the next story is uh, also not not very good uh, a, a medical incident at uh, bangkok airport uh, matt 
Indeed. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, sorry, just switching to the right thing. Uh, we're not going to put any images on this one. It's from mm. the uh, guardian.com, uh, guardian and it's a woman's leg is amputated at Bangkok Airport after getting stuck in a moving walkway. A woman's leg has been amputated in a Thai airport after it became trapped by a moving walkway on uh, Thursday, officials have said. The 57-year-old Thai passenger was due to board a morning flight from Bangkok's Dong Muayang uh, Airport to uh, Nakhon uh, Sitamarat, uh, uh, a prov province where she was caught by the walkway in Terminal 2. A medical team there eventually had to remove her leg from above the knee, according to airport officials. On behalf of the Dong Muayang uh, International Airport, I'd like to express my deepest condolences regarding the accident. The airport director Karen Than Akujirapat told a news conference uh, I'd like to insist that we will ensure that no such accident will happen again. He said the airport would be fully responsible for the woman's medical costs and would be open for negotiations regarding other compensation. The medical team at the hospital informed Karen that they uh, could not reattach her leg but the woman requested to be transferred to another hospital to assess the possibility there, he said. Images shared online showed the lower part of the woman's leg trapped beneath the belt at the end of the walkway and as she was assisted by airport staff. A suitcase lying near her was missing two wheels and the yellow comb-like plates were seen broken off from where they typically cover the edge of the belt uh, where the moving walkway ends. Karun said uh, the uh, suitcase wheels were found underneath the belt but it was unclear how it might relate to the accident. Uh, he said walkways at the airport were checked daily with an additional monthly inspection. He said the walkway had been closed and a team of engineers were inspecting it to determine the cause of the incident. I mean, this is just awful, isn't it, really? Oh yeah. I mean, it's just Sorry. awful. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I, we, we need to find out what happened, don't we? I think this is... Uh, yeah, you think the, these these things would be as safe as they possibly can be, but yeah, you don't know what's happened there. So yeah, I, I agree, and also one. Well, I mean, so I mean, somebody who um, I grew up with in the village of Denton. I remember them having uh, a, a fairly similar accident with a. Um, with um, you know, like the the treadmills um, that you can oh, yes. get. Um, admittedly, this was obviously sort of back in the sort of late eighties, early nineties when we were quite young. Um, mm. But uh, I remember she was on on a, on a treadmill and sort of slipped and fell basically, and it sort of uh, severely damaged her left arm. Um, you know, and and you know, massive skin grafts and all that kind of thing, muscles taken away, etc. So I mean, it is. Yeah. Um, it is uh, pretty. It's, uh, it, it, I can see how it's happened, having known somebody you know who it happened to an incident, some, something similar. It's just awful, mm. really. Just absolutely. Mm. Well, should we move on to something slightly more? Shall we? Good idea. Happy news. Yes. Yeah. Um, on the FalmouthPacket.co.uk, uh, it says that one of the UK's oldest flight attendants celebrates her 73rd birthday. 
Uh, soon-to-be great-grandmother Pam Clark, affectionately known as Nana Pam, is EasyJet's oldest employee. She is based at Luton Airport and has served the airline's customers on more than 4,500 flights. Uh, Ms Clark, a former hairdresser, joined EasyJet as a cabin crew member after spotting uh, a the after spotting the carrier, said that it had appointed her as its recruitment ambassador for over 45s, as she has exceptional customer service and people skills. Following the launch of a diversity campaign last year, the airline has seen a 10% increase in the proportion of applications for cabin crew roles from people in that age category. Cabin crew on commercial flights by UK Airlines must be at least 18 years old, but there is no upper age limit. They must pass uh, a medical examination every five years. And Miss Clark said, my advice to everyone over the, anyone over the age of 45 thinking about applying for a role as a cabin crew at EasyJet would be to go for it. When I applied for the role 20 years ago I knew that my age and experience meant that I had something really valuable to offer. Nowadays I'm meeting more and more colleagues like me who have made a brave career change later in life so don't be afraid. My favourite part of the job has been meeting passengers from all over the world and giving them the most enjoyable travel experience possible. I'm proud to work for a company that puts people first. EasyJet's group people director Jane Storm says it's uh, EasyJet we put people at the heart of everything we do. We're incredibly proud to have Pam on our team and she is a testament to our warm and welcoming cabin crew who have a passion for great customer service. We would encourage people of all ages who share our passion to come on board and with Pam's 73rd birthday just around the corner we're hopeful she will inspire even more talented people to join us in the future. Well, I'm going to get an application for myself. I think you should absolutely <laughs> do it, Nev. I, 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 I worry about you um, having to deal with the general public. That's it. I know it's something my, that you my, do a lot my... of. Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> my anger management skills aren't really <laughs> absolutely. Good. I think you need. I think you'll need to go on an awful lot of courses firsthand just to make sure yes. that you don't have a. Yeah, I, 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 I'd be worried about your blood pressure, Nev. If I'm honest, well, uh, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be appearing on PTUK not as a presenter, but as no, a, uh, a, a a story member yeah. who has uh, <laughs> abused a passenger. Quite yeah. absolutely, indeed. Oh, it's uh, unless unless they had a first class cabin, in which case, obviously, their oh, behaviour would be well, exemplary. That's, that's of a course. Different thing Absolutely, indeed. But uh, no, good honour. I, I, I love yeah. that. I, as you say, it's like whilst you've got a minimum age, um, there is no, um, you know, maximum age. And, and we were saying a sort of some, a, a similar story before, weren't we? Where it was, hmm. um, uh, where we were saying the that everything needs to be sort of as long as the. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, like with the pilots and stuff, wasn't it? We were talking um, last week, uh, I think, about um, you know, sort of pilots and and retiring, at, you know, at a certain age. I mean, as long as they're fit enough and able to well, take qualified to do the job. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And as long as you're passing the medical and all that kind of thing. I mean, you know, most seventy-year-olds are probably in far better shape and/or condition than I ever will be. You know, it's just. Um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Dirk S uh, is saying, but Nev exclusively serving champagne to 1A alone. I mean, obviously, that is a risk. Uh, right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, I think Mark makes a very good point here yeah. as well. He says, uh, tell you what, these drunks would get a thick ear if they crossed her. And, uh, <laughs> they yeah. absolutely would. Old, old school discipline, Nev. That's, Not sure that's... it's in the EasyJet cabin crew manual, but, you know. I think, I'd buy a ticket think just to see right. that, actually. I can say, but she's a grandmother. I mean, who would dare argue? 
I wouldn't. Absolutely, <laughs> indeed. So that's the end of the uh, commercial news segment. Quite a mixture of stories this week. Yeah, I have wasn't to say, it? But uh, yeah. quite entertaining at times as well. Uh, well, next up, um, you may have seen uh, on YouTube that uh, Rory on Air is is back. And now Rory's a helicopter pilot, and he's been uh, documenting his journey. Uh, through all the training that he's been doing uh, to become a fully qualified commercial uh, helicopter pilot and uh, I was in contact with him with this week and I said Rory do you think we could just rebroadcast your latest video because it's absolutely fascinating and Rory's been very quiet recently he's been involved in a lot of training brand new job moved the family up to Aberdeen as well and I thought it's a great opportunity for us to see what he's been up to so let's uh, let's have a look Hello and welcome to a long overdue edition of Rory On Air. Lots of you have been in touch to ask what I'm up to and why I haven't posted a new video for ages. The answer is I've landed my first commercial helicopter job as a co-pilot for Bristow. I'm based in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland flying the S92. The job is transporting offshore oil and gas workers to and from platforms, boats and semi-submersibles in the North Sea to the east of Aberdeen and both on the east and west side of the Shetland Islands. I actually joined Bristow back in May 2022, but largely due to an intense programme of training, buying a house and having a family, I haven't had time to update you until now. In this video you'll get to see some of the action on the Bristow ramp as aircraft start up, load passengers and depart for their flights offshore. I'll also talk through how I got here, what the training has been like and explain a bit more about the job itself. First of all let me tell you about the aircraft. The S-92 helicopter is built in the USA by Sikorsky and came into service in the mid-1990s. She has room for 19 passengers and two pilots. The aircraft is powered by two General Electric turboshaft engines, each capable of producing around 2,500 shaft horsepower. The aircraft is fitted with a rotor ice protection system, allowing us to fly in most icing conditions, particularly useful during the Scottish winter. She cruises at around 135 knots, has a full four-axis autopilot system, air conditioning and cup holders for both pilots. Aberdeen is still one of the busiest heliports in the world with four commercial helicopter operators flying several hundred passengers on and offshore. A typical day sees crews arrive at 6am to plan their flights, checking weather information, no TAMs, load restrictions and many other parameters. After donning immersion suits and life jackets, at the aircraft checklists are followed as systems are tested and ground crews monitor the start sequence. Once the aircraft is up and running, baggage, freight and passengers are boarded while the pilots complete more pre-flight checks. These include programming the route into the flight management system, testing the navigation radios and adjusting bug settings on the primary flight display. Once the door has been secured and the chocks removed, the aircraft then taxi off the ramp and out to the runway ready for departure. Welcome to the cockpit of the S92 helicopter here in the sunshine on the ramp at Aberdeen. Uh, I wanted to talk you through a little bit about uh, the process that got me to this job and also a little bit about what the actual job itself is like. So last April I completed the multi-engine instrument rating on the Augusta 109 helicopter. 
I think it was less than a couple of weeks later, I was offered an interview with Bristow here in Aberdeen. So I came up, uh, I did an interview, I did uh, an assessment in their simulator, did a, an ILS and a couple of circuits and a few other bits and pieces, and then I did a maths assessment as well. And at the end of the day, uh, I disappeared off and I got a phone call a few hours later offering me a job as a co-pilot here on the 92. I was absolutely thrilled to accept. Uh, I'd long wanted to work for Bristow and uh, follow some of my friends and colleagues who were on the same uh, training course as me back in Leicester and uh, to get myself up here as well. So I was absolutely chuffed to bits to be offered that opportunity. And uh, within a few weeks, I was here having moved my family up from Leicester up to Aberdeen and uh, started off the training process which kicked off with a couple of weeks in the classroom learning the uh, ins and outs of this S92 helicopter, uh, the various different electrical systems, the hydraulic systems, engine, performance, all kinds of things. We went through all the, the manuals and everything so that was quite intense for a couple of weeks. Then we moved into the simulator phase so there's a simulator in the Bristow Training Centre uh, just a, a few hundred yards up the road here at the airport and uh, we spent about five or six weeks, my stick buddy and I, in the sim learning the uh, kind of procedures for the aircraft, you know, everything from taxiing on the ground right the way through to the, the sort of handling complexities of landing and taking off from rigs offshore. Uh, doing different types of instrument approach uh, back into places like Aberdeen and up in Sumbra and then once we completed that, we then did the type rating test, also in the simulator here. Uh, we passed that after a couple of days. It's uh, one day of sort of VFR stuff, um, the general handling of the aircraft, and then one day of IFR stuff. And then we're signed off on the 92. That gets added to our licenses. We then came down to the 40s road part of the operation, which is here where I'm, I'm sitting on the ramp here and uh, began what's called line training. So uh, first of all, you, you do a kind of sim to aircraft conversion so you go and fly the real thing for the first time for a couple of hours with an instructor and uh, get a feel for the, the slight differences in handling characteristics between the sim and the aircraft but mainly just to kind of get a feel for what it's actually like to fly one of these things of course the simulator has a little box behind this cockpit area um, where the instructor sits and kind of manipulates things and they do things like fail engines on you and stuff like that. But of course the real aircraft, as you can see, goes back a long way here. Then there's the tail as well, uh, of course with that big tail rotor on the top of the pylon. So you have to bear that in mind when you're operating the aircraft and you're taxiing around, there's a lot of it behind you. Um, and of course once you're onto to decks offshore and stuff, that is even more apparent. So. That sim to aircraft conversion was our first chance to get really hands-on, which was really, really exciting. I mean, pulling this thing, a max takeoff weight of 12 tonnes, into the hover just by lifting the collective was, uh, was a feeling I'll never forget. I couldn't wipe the smile off my face for hours. Um, so that was pretty awesome. Then the next thing we did in the aircraft was uh, our day decks. So we actually flew off to a rig who kindly facilitated allowing my stick buddy and I to do five takeoff and landings each uh, on the platform, which gets us the practice we needed um, in doing the approach and then the transition and land on the deck and the same lift into the hover and then pulling power coming up to our takeoff decision point and then flying away from the platform. We practiced it in the sim, so we knew what to expect. We knew what we were aiming to do. 
um, but the uh, the sim is quite difficult to do on on the sort of rig side of things um, because the the visual elements of the real world and the kind of seat of the pants feel that you get can't be completely replicated so it was great to get the chance to do that uh, for real and then after that we're deemed as ready then to, to become sort of useful co-pilots to a certain extent anyway so we then go off and do flights with uh, passengers taking them to rigs with experienced training captains who uh, keep us right and and start to build up our our knowledge and understanding of the job itself as we actually go through the day-to-day -day workings of uh, an, you know a helicopter company taking oil and gas workers to their place of work and back you know it's a really great opportunity to to kind of build up the the kind of understanding of what each day is like from loading on the passengers uh, talking to our traffic team who look after the passengers the ramp team who manage everybody around here helping get fuel on board getting the aircraft checked by the engineers um, you know requesting permission to taxi around on our ramp here for Bristow and then of course dealing with Aberdeen Tower and ground and getting our movement around the airport and all that sort of stuff then the different radio frequencies that we speak on offshore there are various different radar frequencies as we transit further and further offshore and then of course dealing with the the rigs and the boats themselves talking to them on the radio asking what their load is that they need to bring back to Aberdeen how many passengers they have uh, whether we need to, to take fuel um, they also very kindly provide us with hot food and drinks which is a real uh, a real pleasure to enjoy that on the way back once we're in the cruise and just kind of get to know what the actual job is like it's a it's a noisy uh, visceral environment and it's quite difficult to communicate with people um, uh, you know in other means other than over the radio or the intercom because it is so noisy um, so you have to kind of learn to deal with um, a bit of sort of basic sign language there's a lot of thumbs up there's a lot of gesturing um, all that kind of stuff which uh, which makes it quite interesting and you get used to that and you get used to the way people do things and, and the procedures are kind of known offshore as well so that's really good. You can see here I'm sitting in my cotton flying suit which in the summer we're allowed to fly in. Um, we wear a life jacket as well which I'm not wearing at the moment and our orange immersion suits which um, keep us warm and reasonably dry if we were to uh, to ditch in the sea. In the summer, with the sea temperature warm enough during daylight hours and uh, with sea states, i.e. not too rough, we're allowed to fly wearing our cotton suits if we choose and, uh, and obviously the life jacket as well. So we kind of interchange. Sometimes I come into work wearing my cotton suit, other times I wear my uniform shirt as well. So uh, various different outfit changes go on. Uh, you'll see up in flight planning, uh, crews up there come in in the morning uh, or various staggered times through the day they sit and they plan their flights uh, looking at everything from weather and no tams whether both onshore and offshore of course uh, aircraft serviceability um, what sort of loads the clients looking to fly with all that kind of stuff is all covered uh, during the planning phase then we get in our in our suits move out to the aircraft the co-pilot normally comes out first um, gets the battery on, gets the weather forecast uh, and sort of where, weather current information rather from the ATIS and, uh, and also gets the, uh, the clearance from the tower 
to start the aircraft up and then once the captain comes out and joins a, a ramp crew will come out and give us a start so they stand out at the front of the aircraft and visually monitor to make sure that nothing goes wrong as we start initially the auxiliary power unit which I showed you and then the uh, the main engines as well we do those one at a time we've got the throttles up here on the roof and the fuel selectors we've got the rotor brake which we would obviously take off first and then once the aircraft's all up and running all these screens and everything come to life and we're able then to uh, to kind of set everything up put our route into the flight management system make sure that all our bug settings are right on our primary flight display that our nav display is displaying what we need and we go through absolutely everything we've got a, a checklist uh, for all the procedures so for starts all the way right through to during the flight so our takeoff checks cruise checks everything you can think of we've got our offshore checks in blue as well here so we always reference the checklist and um that's pretty much how a kind of normal day starts we would either have normally one or two flights um so maybe out to a platform back with passengers and then maybe a rotor's running changeover so we'll taxi up to one of the hot spots uh, the traffic guys will come out they'll take the passengers inside they'll bring our next lot out once we've taken some fuel on board and then we'll head off again and do it again to either the same place again or usually a different platform on the second trip and uh, and ferry some more passengers out to work and bring some others home. It's different every day. Although we are generally going to mainly the same places, um, every day is different because the weather is always different. You're flying with different um, colleagues and uh, you know there's always something. It's aviation, it's, it's the real world. There's always a curveball that happens that kind of makes you think and makes you replan or or kind of discuss how you're going to do things to make sure that you achieve a safe and efficient outcome because that's ultimately what we're we're here to do we're we're kind of bus drivers really um we we take people to and from their place of work um it's an important job but it's not vital that we go now um we're not search and rescue we're here to do it safely and efficiently and get everybody where they need to be you know on time if we can but the absolute priority is is safety so that's basically the job um i really hope that over the next few months and years i'll be able to share more of the job with you i'd love to be able to attach some cameras in the cockpit and take you on a trip with me and let you see what it's actually like to approach and land onto something offshore it is amazing every time i do it i see a, a rig or a ship in the distance and think wow i'm going to get to actually land this massive aircraft on that it always gives me a buzz i really really love doing it and um, it's a privilege to be at this point where I'm actually now being paid to fly helicopters and uh, and really live out my childhood dream. So thank you to Bristow for giving me that opportunity to, uh, to get started in a, a flying career. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And of course, thank you to you as well for all your support. So many of you have messaged me um, here on YouTube and through my social media channels on Facebook and Instagram particularly, um, wishing me well and asking questions. And a lot of you here on YouTube particularly may not be aware until now even that I've actually got a job flying helicopters a lot of you message me saying what's going on Rory you know how, how are things where are you, you kind of disappeared and all I can say is I apologize for the fact that it's taken so long to, to give you an update but as I think I've outlined all that training uh, initially in the simulator and the ground school and then the line training was pretty intense for several months um, I've got an 18 month old um, lad called Jack um, and my wife as well. We bought a house up in uh, Stonehaven which is just a few miles south of Aberdeen on the coast. 
So there was a lot of things going on in my life with a new job and a small child and new house and all the rest of it. Um, there was just not enough time to try and do something. So yeah, thank you very much indeed for subscribing. Thanks for watching. Thanks for all your encouragement. Do stick around here on the channel and check out some of my back catalogue of videos. And I do try to post relatively regular updates uh, and some photographs and things from various parts of the job uh, on my Facebook page and my Instagram page as well. Details on the screen for you to follow me on there if you don't already. But uh, from me here on the ramp at Bristow in Aberdeen, thank you very much for watching and I'll see you next time. Cheerio. Well, come on in, Charlie Delta. Welcome to Delta for Hotspot, please. Charlie Delta, ramp. We're on the top for Hotspot 2, then it'll be a stand for shutdown. We're right at the top, uh, hot 2, then a stand for the shutdown. Charlie Delta, thanks. I mean, I, I don't know where to begin. I really don't. That was utterly brilliant. Utterly, utterly brilliant. I'll tell you what, when we were talking about that, and he, he touched on that, actually, um, while, while we were, were, were watching that, it, it does very much remind me of the minibuses that I used to drive with. I mean, obviously not flying, of course, in my case. Um, but did, Nev, you were saying, was it 19 seats, did you say? Yes. No, I, what I thought you were going to say is you used to have a full glass cockpit in your minibus, <laughs> but I, I doubt that somehow. Uh, uh, no, uh, definitely not. Absolutely. It's like all the avionics and all the, uh, you know, all the glass cockpit and stuff he's got going mm. on in that uh, S92. It's absolutely incredible aircraft. It is. Yeah. Uh, really was quite stunning. Yes, absolutely. But also, I mean, you know, let's be honest, doing this uh, offshore business is not for the faint-hearted at all. Mm. And then the weather in the North Sea can be absolutely mm. atrocious. And obviously there are you know, certain limits where they, they can't go. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the training must be absolutely first class mm. for these guys to be able, and girls to be able to do this. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. It's... Uh, well, you'll have, you'll have to see if you can catch up with him, Nev, because I've, I've got well, lots of questions. Well, I'm going to see questions. if I can um, pop up to Aberdeen one of these days, and I'll see hmm. if I can, uh, Rory and I can find a time to sit down, we can have a bit of a, hmm. a longer chat. But uh, I'm absolutely delighted that Bristow was giving him the permission to be able to uh, shoot yeah. this and, and show it uh, as well. Yeah. So if you want to find out more about Rory, just do a search for Rory on Air on Google and that you'll find him uh, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and on YouTube as well and on YouTube you'll see all of his his journey so far about how he got here and it's it's quite a long journey that's for mm. sure the various things that he's been doing both flying a fixed wing and rotary aircraft but uh, this clearly is, is the job he, he really wants is mm. he's flying helicopters and he's uh, yeah uh, yeah it's I still was about to say he's a very lucky man but actually no. Let's face it; he's worked so hard yeah. to get this far. I mean, uh, so there's a lot of skill behind it as well. And that, that's the bit that sort of melts my mind, really. Obviously, I mean, I'm very familiar with his voice. He was uh, somebody mm. I used to listen to very regularly on BBC Five Live. Um, as you say, it's such a career change as well, isn't it? But it's just yeah. so exciting that uh, that he is literally living the dream, as he said, he's living his boyhood dream, which is just brilliant. Yeah, a good point that uh, Richard makes, actually. He says even the passengers need regular ditching yep. uh, practice in the pool simulator, and that's very true. One of my chums uh, services audio-visual equipment uh, offshore as well. 
for his company and uh, he needs to do that i think it's every six months or every year mm. can't remember how long it is now uh, but uh, as a passenger he needs to make sure he knows how to get out of the aircraft uh, should it ditch as well yeah. so uh, there's a, a lot to it that's for sure yeah indeed and of course a very real real possibility isn't it as well because they they are flying well, much slower and you all know that kind things of thing. things happen don't they mm. so uh, but you've got to be prepared for every eventuality uh, yeah so, uh, there we go Absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Mm. Uh, I certainly did. Always fascinating to hear from Rory and uh, tremendous. And thanks to him mm. for allowing us to show it to you as well. Uh, so time for a bit of military, I think, folks. Don't oh, you? OK. Now, I'll press the button, shall I, Nev? All right. Off you go. Blast up buggies, 135, 50, Angel 16, 340. OK. Time for a bit of military, and uh, Nick's got the first story here about some uh, RAF typhoons. Yeah, so this one comes from the forces.net, and it's all about the RAF typhoons getting an £870 million advanced radar upgrade. So the Royal Air Force's typhoon fighter jet is one step closer to acquiring one of the world's most advanced radar systems, as well as additional upgrades. Under the 870 million five-year contract awarded to BAE Systems and Leonardo UK, the Typhoon fighters will have upgraded radar capabilities and will be fitted with the European Common Radar System, ECRS Mark II, one of the world's most advanced radars. This will allow the aircraft to simultaneously detect, identify and track multiple targets in the air and on the ground. The ECRS Mark II will be integrated into the RAF Typhoon Tranche 3 aircraft and offered to other nations that operate the aircraft, boosting UK defence exports. Minister for Defence Procurement James Cartledge said the RAF Typhoon is one of the most mission-ready and capable aircraft anywhere in the world, helping protect our skies at home and abroad. This contract award is an investment in the future readiness and preparedness of our fighter jets so that we can continue to showcase our world-leading air capability. The radar contract will sustain 600 engineering jobs in Edinburgh, Luton and Lancashire. The Typhoon Programme Director Group Captain Matt Dorbin said Typhoon is the backbone of UK combat air capable of completing a wide range of air-to-air and air-to-surface missions. The ECRS Mark II will ensure Typhoon remains operationally effective in the future force mix in an ever-increasing contested environment. Amazing that the, the electronics in these aircraft are just state-of-the-art, aren't they? They really are. So, yeah. I mean, forgive, forgive my naivety on this one, but I mean, that, I'm just going to pop that last picture back up. I mean, to, to, to me, Nev, these look like, like really thick sound, you know, like um, sound tiles, do you know, that you put on the wall. Is that, is that like part of the, the systems, if you like, to Well, try I think and... that, is that part of the wind tunnel, perhaps? Possibly. It looks like no, an yeah. anechoic chamber to me, so they, would have, they would basically would have placed the aircraft in there and what that will do, it's got those those tiles which have got kind of um, foam pyramids on them. And what they do is effectively they will absorb any uh, radio uh, transmissions. Right. So they will stop any 
transmissions escaping that uh, that test booth. Okay. Uh, and it will basically allow them to to test the electronics on board the aircraft without any sort of um, oh, sort of external interference and stuff. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. really they're properly creepy places. I mean, I've sort of worked a bit in the electronics industry myself, and some of these booths you go in there, and there's there's such a high degree of of, of not only electronic deadening but also sound deadening. Uh, to the point where you can hear your own heartbeat. It's wow! Yes, I've been in creepy. an anechoic chamber at the uh, University of Salford in Manchester, actually, and uh, it's very weird indeed. Quite eerie, isn't it? In, yeah. In that yeah. Sort of place. Yeah. Wow! Wow! As that, I mean, they're thick enough. Certainly, I mean, as you say, you can just see one on the floor there, can't you? Where it's obviously just deflecting um, bits and pieces. That just not, I mean, I'm more fascinated about that, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, we, we've, it's amazing that we've actually been able to comment sensibly on yeah. the military story. I know, right? Yeah. In the absence well, of Armando. Well Thank done, us. Nick here. Yeah. Yeah. Feel, on the back there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel it, we're all feeling very proud. Shall we, uh, shall we see if we can do it with the next one? Yeah, that's going to go. Why don't we have a bit of a roll now, aren't we? So it's, this one's on the, drive, yeah, on the drive.com. Uh, and uh, this is the uh, T7A Redhawk trainer has taken its first flight and uh, part of an initial lot of pre-production engineering and manufacturing development aircraft to be used for testing and design validation purposes it's taken to the skies as I said and uh, if everything comes to fruition the jets in this lot will pave the way for full up production aircraft this follows the company's announcement last week that one of these T7As had completed taxi tests on the ground uh, in preparation for this milestone. Uh, Boeing and the Air Force have uh, both confirmed that the T-7A's first flight had taken place earlier in a tweet uh, during this week. Uh, the plan, as it's been previously reported, will see the jet eventually head to Edwards Air Force Base in California for further testing. And uh, the war zone has also reached out to Boeing for more information. Uh, well, the prototype T-7A, which carries the US Air Force serial number 21-7002 uh, was the same one used for the taxi testing carrying it, carried out the first flight from St. Louis uh, Lambert International Airport uh, in Missouri uh, and uh, the Red Hawk is slated to eventually replace the Air Force uh, aging T-38 uh, fleet which are becoming increasingly more difficult to operate and maintain. Boeing had alluded to the impending first flight with a video that highlighted Major Bryce Turner as one of the two individuals expected to take the T-7A to the skies for the first time. Turner, who's a member of the 416th Flight Test Squadron, which is a third generation Air Force pilot and an African American, said in that clip uh, that it's not just any other test for me. Uh, the Red Hawk's name and Jet's current paint scheme are direct references to the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II fame who served in the US military's first African-American flying squadron which was eventually equipped uh, which eventually equipped P-51 Mustangs with red painted tails. Uh, the first flight is an important step forward in the T-7A's development process and reaching this stage is perhaps particularly important given how behind schedule the Red Hawk is currently. In 2018 the Air Force chose what is now known as the T-7A, a design Boeing crafted in co cooperation with Swedish plane maker Saab as the winner of the TX trainer competition. Uh, since 2016, Boeing has been doing actual flight testing in support of the program, but using demonstrator aircraft that are not fully production repetitive. Mm. This happens with a lot of uh, programs, doesn't it? Um, mm. Delays and you know all sorts of things. But uh, yeah. 
Sounds like they're making some progress uh, with this now. With Indeed. Time, so. uh, I, I'm going to make a totally inappropriate comment here. That first picture that we were looking at there, uh, this to me this looks like a model that's been put down on someone's uh, tiled kitchen floor. It, it, uh, it does, <laughs> yes. <laughs> A reasonable comment. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's a fully sized one. And you know, I also I, I've sort of never really seen an airport where where the mm. uh, where where it's essentially paved with massive slabs. Uh, yeah. it's Different. Uh, I'll give it a. But you know, it's. I mean, it uh, looks nice. Yes. <laughs> nice sandstone. <laughs> Yeah. They could have gone for a bit of parquet instead. I think so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's my take on the military stories for this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really cool-looking aircraft. It is, and actually. Yeah, I, it is. I do have a serious point to make, actually, which is uh, mentioned in the story there about replacing the T-38. Those things have been going, what, since the 60s? I mean, oh, they wow. had the, yeah. the, you know, the Apollo astronauts were flying around in the T-38. So the fact that those things are still operational yeah. now is, you know, they must, they must have been in service for 50-odd years. Mm. I think that's extraordinary. They're, they're still a cool-looking plane. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, indeed. Uh, I, I, I guess it's inevitable that they will will update it. But I guess you know, you know, there's sort of uh, yeah. It, but this seems to be quite commonplace, doesn't it? In in, in military, isn't it? That they, they they don't just change it for the sake of it. Do you know what I mean? It's not just if the aircraft will still do the job and and it's you know still passing its airworthiness checks and stuff. It, it is quite the quite the big decision when they when they mm. when they change to to something else. Yeah, the military always get a lot of life out of their aircraft, don't they? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, value for money. You see, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Indeed. Definitely. Indeed. I think we did quite well there, gents. Mm. Well, two out of two. <laughs> yeah, We've left the last one to you, Matt. So you're welcome. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Okay, all right then. Well, we'll, ju we'll just whiz uh, through this one uh, quickly. Uh, simpleflying.com. Oh, he says he's, he's, he's just realised he's on the wrong camera. Let me just do that. It's the trouble when it's picture story and I'm pressing the buttons. Um, it's... Uh uh, yes, uh, explain the mechanisms that helped bombers drop their payload. Um, it's uh, bombers have been uh, uh, long been a crucial component of of military strategy, capable of delivering devastating payloads to enemy targets. While the earliest bombers are often remembered as being from World War Two era, like the Avro Lancaster and the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, it was actually in 1849 that the first bomb was dropped from the air. The early days of aerial warfare in the mid-1800s, during the First Italian War of Independence, bombs were dropped from the sky by unmanned hot air balloons, as you do. Uh, it's uh, based on this same principle. Aircraft began carrying bombs in 1911 uh, during the uh, Italian... The Italo-Turkish War and then in the 1912 Balkan War. However, it was not until World War One that strategic bombing from the air was used. German airships began uh, dropping bombs on cities in Britain and France, initially dropped by hand and aimed by line of sight. Undoubtedly, this form of bombing was unreliable and ineffective, as written by former US Army Lieutenant Riley E. Scott in the scientific American in 2011. When we consider aeroplanes flying at reasonably safe heights, say between one and two miles, the problem of accuracy dropping projectiles becomes 
a difficult one and scientific calculation must take the place of guesswork. Uh, the development of bomb sites themselves as witnessed in the modern day aviation innovations in aircraft technology have a way of progressing and adapting to operational needs very quickly. Thus by the end of the war a mechanism uh, was developed to drop bombs accurately and uh, the bomb site was born. A bomb site is a tact is a um uh, an optical or electronic device installed in the aircraft that helps the bombardier to accurate that well the bomb uh, yeah, oh I see yeah bombardier yeah literally <laughs> see what they did there to accurately determine the release point for dropping bombs on a target these sophisticated instruments calculate factors such as altitude airspeed uh, wind direction and target <coughs> distance uh, to um, guide the bombardier to uh, in achieving the desired point of impact by utilizing advanced optics and gyroscopes bomb sites enable precise targeting reducing collateral damage and increasing the likelihood of hitting strategic targets with maximum impact uh, the northern bomb site one notable type of bomb site is the northern bomb site or bomb yeah bomb site which uh, gained prominence during world war ii it was a highly complex a mechanical device that utilized a series of gyros and intricate mechanical computers to calculate the precise moment for bomb release. It offered exceptional accuracy, uh, allowing bombardiers to uh, drop bombs with impressive precision. The Norden was compiled using a radar system to facilitate accurate nighttime and cloud shrouded bombings, the evolution of bomb sites. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, fully computerized bomb sites uh, had, be had began making an appearance combined with long range navigation and mapping these bomb sites began replacing the northern nonetheless the latter stra uh, uh, legacy remained a testament uh, to the ingenuity and technological advancements uh, achieved in the field of bombing accuracy uh, over the years bomb sites have evolved significantly incorporating advanced technologies such as laser range binders and computerized target acquisition systems allowing for more accurate and efficient bombing operations these days rather than using bomb sites uh, many modern aircraft rely on head-up displays that combine bombing missile fire gunnery and navigation with the ability to calculate real-time bomb trajectories as the air craft maneuvers there we go uh, uh matt this is the occasion you can shout out oh oh bombardier is that what i'm supposed to say yes you could yeah, oh no <laughs> oh no i've been trying so hard to say it right and i'm using the company name and not actual however not to worry <laughs> because there will be another occasion later in the show where you can say that word again if you oh, want okay. to. Oh, OK. All right. I look forward to it. Mm. Excellent. Uh, OK. <laughs> oh, I feel like there's a clue there to something that's coming up. Oh, uh, very are. good. OK. Yeah. Uh, so that really is it for the military now, I'm pleased to yes. say. <laughs> it's, we find military quite hard work, don't we, without... Yes, it's because we don't have the knowledge that we need. We, this this yeah. is why we miss Armando when he's not here, because yeah. he, he actually knows what he's talking about. And he has this oh, unique yeah. ability yeah, of making the military sound interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Not to worry. Indeed. Well, let's um, go back up to Scotland now, shall we? And uh, 
Let's go uh, to the Museum of Flight in East Fortune. As you may know, Carlos and I were up there a few weeks ago, had a fascinating trip of the museum and did a number of bits and pieces there. We also had a chance to interview Ian Brown. Uh, Carlos was talking to him last week. Ian's the curator of the museum there. Uh, but this week uh, I thought I would show you the video that I shot with Ian. Uh, I was asking him a lot more about the aircraft's heritage and the preservation and, and how they go about it up there. So let's go and have a look. Well here we are again back at the National Museum of Flight uh, in uh, East Fortune. I'm with uh, Ian Brown who's the curator. Cool. Thanks very much indeed for spending some of your time with us today. We've had a great visit around the museum, I have to say. But it's become quite obvious that, you know, these aircraft need upkeep and, and, and looking after. How difficult is that to do? Um, I mean, obviously, it's the, the aircraft outside. I mean, if you talk to anyone at any museum with the aircraft outside, they'll tell you it's, it's a real challenge. Um, I suppose the exception to that might be if you if you talk to the guys at, at the museum at Pima, um, you know, the nice dry Arizona desert, it's a different matter. But um, I mean, we're lucky we've got two full-time conservators on staff, um, and I mean, they're certainly their focus at the moment is uh, looking after our, our three outside aircraft, uh, which is the Avro Vulcan, the Davin Comet, and the, the BEC 111, um, and. I mean, I, I have to be honest, when you, you know, hopefully everyone will, will come and visit the museum and, and see them for themselves, but when you see the aircraft, you can tell they have been outside. Um, I mean, the, the Comet flew here in 1981, um, the Vulcan flew in in 84, um, the 111 came road that was part of the, the British Airways collection at Cosford, um, but it had been at Cosford for I think it was 35 years before mm. it came here. So I mean, again, it had been outside for, for quite a while as well. Um, and they are showing the effects. Um, I mean, you can, you can see, you know, there is paint peeling. On, on I, the I would say that, and I was last here in uh, 2015 uh, myself, and you can definitely tell that, you know, the, the years that have gone by, you know, inevitably, that, you know, the, the aircraft are going to deteriorate, aren't they? I mean, what, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and pretend. I mean, th there's no point in lying and say, oh, you know what, they're in mint condition and you're, you're, I'm going to Photoshop every picture that anyone can see. That, I mean, they are suffering. We do want to get them indoors and we're, we're sort of, we'd love to, to do that if we can. But as I say, our, our conservation team are working on them at the moment. And one of the things that I found interesting, they were, um, they've been working the Comet over recent years. Um, some of the window seals had gone, so there was, some water collecting between the, the, the two layers of perspex. Um, so in order to, to do that, they were taking the windows out. Um, and obviously this is Scotland, so you, know, you don't want the rain getting in while, you, while you're dealing with that. So in order to seal the, the window holes, the, the best way of doing that was using an inflatable space hopper, um, which bizarrely becomes the big press story, you know, th these aircraft with orange space hoppers in the windows. Um, but, you know, they've also been looking at um, internal structures, you know, and as I say, the, the Comet's been here since 1981. Um, I mean, we, for many years we had volunteers looking after them, um, and I mean, they did a fantastic job. But 
when you, you actually look at inside the wine, the main spa, there's almost no corrosion on, apparently. I mean, I haven't seen it, but, mm. but, but you know, our professional conservatives say they are actually in fantastic condition. Um, I mean, they've lifted up the floor and looked at the, you know, the, the, unders, you know, the, the internals of the underside of the aircraft. And certainly for the Comet, I think the whole as part of the redesign of the Comet 4 falling on from obviously the, the, the issues with the Comet 1 and the, the, the fatigue failures, they really built the Comet 4 like a tank and it's obviously really thick gauge um, metal because even after 40 odd years outside, yeah, I'm not saying it can survive forever outside but it's actually in remarkably good condition. The issue certainly for, for our visitors is the, you know, because they've been repainted several times over the years and it's not aviation grade paint, so the paint fades in the light. So certainly for the Comet, it does look very tired and, you know, the Danny livery, I mean, the red is now a, a kind of salmon pink. Um, that, whether viewers believe me or not, it is actually in better condition than it looks. But we are aware that it um, that it that it is an issue, and you know we are trying to look after them the best we can until we can yeah. hopefully get them under cover in, yeah. in the future. Our listeners are always interested in aviation heritage, of course, and the preservation of it as well. I mean, we've just seen a, a recent failure down in Cornwall uh, of the museum yeah, that's, that's, that's closed there, which is very sad indeed. It's a terrible loss. How challenging is it for you in terms of funding and you know keeping the whole place going? I mean, we are in a, a very lucky position. I mean, it, without wishing to point fingers, I mean, obviously what's happened at, at Cornwall is not, you know, you know no one would, would choose to be in that situation, but it is in some respects a salutary lesson about tenure of site. Um, and I mean, I know it's a concern for a lot of aviation museums. I mean, I, um, for volunteer run museums that are accredited to, be, you know, to achieve the accreditation standard, they have to have a professional mentor that works with them. And uh, I'm the accreditation mentor for the Aviation Museum, uh, or Dumfries and Galway Aviation Museum. So I kind of work quite close with them. So I, I, I'm not saying I know every volunteer run museum, but I have an awareness of some of their concerns um, and challenges. Um, and I mean, Dumfries could potentially have been in a similar situation. They, they rented their site. Um, they were told that their rent was going to increase massively um, beyond what they could afford. Um, they were in a lucky situation that the landowner was persuaded to allow them to buy the site, which they were able to do, so they now own their site. Um, but yeah, for museums that don't own their site, it's always a concern that, as a national museum, um, we're in a kind of different situation. Obviously, we, we own the site, but we're, we're funded by the Scottish Government. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're very lucky that we do get a, a big wad of cash, yeah. which, which allows us to employ professional staff. Well, that was, well, that was what I was going to lead on to, actually, because it's been very obvious with Carlos and I walking around the museum today, the encyclopedic knowledge of the tour guides and the volunteers as well. It's absolutely incredible. It's very impressive indeed. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky. We've, we've kind of increased our um, volunteer team um, this year, in the last kind of couple of years, actually. Um, and, I mean, a lot of the team that we've got are our ex-air crew. Um, I mean, this year we've just opened our, our conservation hangar, so the fourth hangar that's it's not been open to the public since 2014, I think, um, is open again. Um, and, I mean, it's it's got various... Aircraft that we always got asked about, so the, the Phantom, Buccaneer, Nimrod, Blue Streak Rocket, um, our Viscount, all that kind of, but quite a few of the volunteers we've taken on are, um, there's a few ex-Nimrod crew in amongst them, so I mean obviously they've got, yeah. as non-air um, crew myself, they have knowledge that I can never, you, you, you can never get from reading a book. Yeah. Um, and I mean, one of the other volunteer museums that I work with a lot uh, at Moravia, um, up in uh, the north of Scotland, at Kinloss, um, they're very similar. Most of their volunteers, because they're at Kinloss, which is not that long since it closed as an RAF station, most of their volunteers are ex-RAF air crew. So it's, it's one thing to have someone take a a tour and you know they can learn the information but when your guide is someone who's actually lived it it's a whole different level of of uh, of experience and i mean that's certainly something that we've we've, we've tried to to give to our to our visitors and yeah and hope, hopefully that comes across in the, in the oh in the tours. it certainly does absolutely now you mentioned that you were non-flying but uh, we're going to ask you the question that we ask everyone at the end of interviews which is if you had the opportunity to go and fly an aircraft whether it's military commercial uh, general aviation retired or, or current what would that aircraft be well yeah I mean, I, I'm, I don't have a pilot's license, but the limit of my experience was um, in the Air Cadets. So I've, I think I've got five and a half hours on chipmunks, oh, that's okay. um, yeah. which, which tells you a bit about my age when there was <laughs> the, the Air Cadets were flying chipmunks. Um, oh, what would I fly? Oh, it's got to be a typhoon, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... One of the nice things I, that I love about this museum is that we're not just you know, the military aircraft. I mean, we, are, we have the resource and the size of site that we have, the commercial aircraft, that a lot of museums just don't have space for. Um, and, you know, who doesn't love flying to some nice exotic location? But, yeah, there's just something sexy yeah. about fast jets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I mean... The F-22 and F-35 things, yeah, fine, but having said that, I mean, we interviewed um, Harry Pilot for, because for me, we did displays in 2016. Now most of the aircraft have got touch screens with um, footage of pilots and other air crew and designers and passengers and whatever. And talking to one of the Harry Pilots, it never occurred to me, because with a, a V-stall aircraft, you have to have a huge amount of engine power in order to do a vertical takeoff, which means if you're doing um, a short takeoff, it goes like a racing car. And it had never occurred to me, and I thought, you don't think of a Harrier as having yeah. an excess of power. <laughs> but, so 
possibly a Harrier, but probably a Typhoon, yeah. to be honest. Well, that's fantastic. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you very much indeed for your hospitality. You Today, uh, Carlos and I have thoroughly enjoyed ourselves, and we've got some more filming to do uh, later on, but uh, many thanks again no uh, for showing us around for a fantastic Welcome museum. back anytime. Thanks very much. You're welcome, thanks. What a wonderful what a nice fellow he is. Absolutely, it really was. It sounds like yeah. you had, as you say, you had an absolutely cracking, uh, cracking visit there. And uh, Nick, you were saying about trying to get up there yourself, actually. Yeah, it looks fantastic. It looks like mm. a, a really uh, thoroughly well-organised place with a, with a lot of really mm. worthwhile uh, exhibits. And it sounds like they're trying to sort of get all of the uh, exhibits undercover like as soon as possible, Nev, he was saying this. Yeah, and there's, there's some challenges there. They, they were mm. going to build a new hangar as well at one point. Um, but no, it's uh, they've got a very nice display of, of outdoor aircraft, mm. uh, other hangars as well with aircraft in, and of course, uh, Concord Alpha Alpha. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, where we, we shot it. So, uh, yeah, brilliant. But uh, thanks very much indeed to Ian and the team uh, at the Museum of Flight at East Fortune. Uh, we thoroughly enjoyed our time there and uh, we hope to be back again in one of these days soon. So, that was indeed brilliant. Mm -hmm. Right, what's next? It's oh. the competition. Whee! It's the competition. Uh, the book uh, we are giving away this week is called Cold War Boys, previously unpublished tales of daring do from pilots and crew of the Lightning, Phantom, Hunter, Tornado and other aircraft. Written by Richard Pike and uh, published by our friends at Grub Street Publishing. We have the bag. That means we have some correct answers in there. I shall have a uh, fiddle around in there. Uh, had a few incorrect answers as what? well. What? Actually, yes. So do you want to know what the correct answer is? Yeah, go on then. Go on. Uh, well, you better read it out, actually, Matt, because okay. it, it features one of your favourite oh, words. Oh, I see. I'll, 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 I'll ask the question. You can give me the answer. Indeed. So the question was, what is the fastest business jet in production? Is that the correct question? Yes. Yes, so indeed. And the answer is, uh, well, Bombardier Global 8000 Mac 0.94 is what it could achieve, uh, as I say, or Bombardier, as I like to say. That's more like it. <laughs> Lovely. Absolutely. Indeed. Oh, and I've out... Uh, the name Dirk S. Dirk S. Well Love done, it. Dirk. Great job, sir. Excellent stuff. Um, send me your address if you wouldn't mind, and I will post this to you uh, tomorrow or Saturday to Wonderful. the fine country of Germany. And, Indeed, uh, I'll be with you probably, um, hopefully, before the end of uh, next week. Uh, yeah, all being well. So yeah, that should be good. Uh, we haven't got a competition this week, uh, not because we haven't got any books, but because I haven't had time to prepare <laughs> a question because I got home rather yes. late. So a bit last we shall minute, resume that uh, next week. Definitely. Indeed. So well on, Dirk. Excellent job, sir. Nice one. Okay. Uh, let's do a quick round robin then. What have you got in your diary for this week, Nev? Um, chaos, generally speaking. Um, Just tomorrow, <laughs> I'm going up to a place near Banbury in Oxfordshire to meet up with Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. Oh, wow. Because Jeff is over for the Formula One at yeah. Silverstone this weekend. Uh, which will be fantastic for him because he's not never been to a Grand Prix before. That'd I don't be think. Yeah. 
Um, so that'll be so great. jealous. I love so Silverstone as well. They picked, mm, yes. they picked so a good be, one. That'd be nice for, for Jeff to, to, to go to that. Yeah. Uh, next week, I'm down in Brighton at our office for a couple of days, uh, doing some bits and pieces down there. Uh, not flying for a couple of weeks, but the next time I do some flying will be about the third week of July up to Edinburgh for a few days again. So nice. That's the plan. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Nick, what have you got in your calendar? Um, not a not a huge amount. I mean, I think it's going to be a, a busy week coming up with the day job. Um, I think I'm still reeling from the fact that we're recording this on a Thursday. <laughs> we're going to work tomorrow. It's, uh, I know. We're all a bit horrified. Old. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I've not got much in my diary, it has to be said. Uh, I'm sort of on the wind down from... Uh, I'm in the process of changing jobs, uh, so on a bit of a wind down. But I do have an... Uh, so I've got an outside broadcast tomorrow, which is one of the reasons why we're recording this evening. And also, uh, I've got an outside broadcast on Saturday. So uh, tune into Park Radio if you want to hear either of those. When you'll say you said you're changing jobs, are you going to uh, be a cabin crew for? Easter? That'll be it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to see if I can squeeze down the aisles and, and fit in the galley well, and all that kind of thing. That'll I, be fun. I think you make a good cabin crew member. Actually. Oh, I, you know, I'm, you, you've got a very good uh, public persona. <laughs> yes, uh, and someone that likes providing good service to people. Yes, indeed. Yes, I have. I haven't quite. I haven't quite disliked all humans just yet. No. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, a couple of weeks in the job, who knows, anything's possible. But at the moment, I, I still quite like humans. Uh, mm. But uh, only just. Yes, you wait, you wait to get to, to my age. You'll soon change your tune. Soon, soon knock those corners off. Yes, absolutely, yes. indeed. Oh, dear, never mind. Uh, right. Well, it's been a great show. And thank you for joining us on, on the Thursday, for the folks that have been joining us live tonight. Thanks to Matt for pressing all the buttons. Thanks to Nick for his brilliant contribution and assisting us with the production of the show, as he does every week. Uh, meanwhile, we'll be back at the normal time on Friday of next week at 7 o'clock. So set your watches for then. Meanwhile, hope you have a great weekend, everybody, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.